from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. On this episode of Newt's World, in late December, the news of baby... Ying Liang, an exquisitely preserved dinosaur embryo, was reported in the journal iScience. And it's an extraordinary story. The Ovoraptorosaur dinosaur embryo had been acquired in 2000 by Lang Lu, the director of a company called Ying Liang Group, who suspected it might contain egg fossils. But it then ended up in storage, largely forgotten about until 10 years later, when museum staff during the construction of Yingliang Stone Nature History Museum sorted through the boxes and unearthed the fossils. The museum staff identified several dinosaur eggs, but the embryo hidden within one of them, which they named baby Yingliang, was so well preserved and showed a tucking position just before hatching. I've personally always been fascinated by dinosaurs, and I'm really excited by the baby Yingliang discovery. I wanted to have someone on the podcast who helped co-author the study on baby Yingliang and who is an expert in his field. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Stephen Broussat, Chair of Paleontology and Evolution in the School of Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Steve, I want to thank you for joining me to discuss this important discovery. I've been a fan of yours ever since I read your book a few years ago, The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs, The New History of Their Lost World. It's a fantastic book, which I highly recommend to everyone. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's very nice 
to talk, you know, two dinosaur enthusiasts chatting here together. I know you've been a longtime dinosaur enthusiast and you've done a lot of philanthropy around paleontology and me and many others in the field appreciate that. So I'm very excited to talk dinosaurs with you and thank you for the kind words on the book. I do appreciate it. So tell me for a second, because I was a little surprised, delighted, but surprised to see that you had also gotten involved with baby Yingliang. How did you end up becoming involved in studying the dinosaur egg? I was really fortunate to be part of this project. I was invited on by my Chinese colleagues. And ever since I was an undergrad, I've been working with Chinese colleagues. I did my first international field work in China with my supervisor, a guy named Paul Serino, who's a very famous dinosaur paleontologist. And I've just really enjoyed working with people all over the world, but especially in China, because there's so many important fossils being found. And I've worked a lot on dinosaurs from southern China. There's rocks in southern China that come from the Cretaceous period. This was the last gasp of dinosaur evolution before the asteroid came down and wiped them out. And a lot of the fossils down there are found during construction work, when foundations for buildings are being laid or roads are being laid. And so I just have built a network of friends and colleagues there. And when one of my colleagues caught wind of this embryo, he was very excited. He invited me to help him study it because these are the kind of dinosaurs that I've studied. You know, I've noticed recently that there are a surprising number of places where something will have been collected 10, 20, 30, even 100 years ago, but it never quite got looked at, or the new technology lets us look at it differently. And so there's a lot of not just discovery in the field, but there's a lot of discovery in the lab. Absolutely. In the lab and in museums. And this is why we have museums, really. I mean, we have museums so we can conserve things, whether it's fossils, whether it's archaeological artifacts, whether it's artwork. And a lot of times in paleontology, we collect things. We go out in the field, we dig up fossils, we find fossils. And we'll put them in museums, we'll conserve them in museums, but we can't study them right away. So sometimes they do sit around for a while, and it does take 10 years, 20 years sometimes. And that's what happened in this case. Thankfully, this fossil, as you say, this exquisite baby dinosaur, I mean, it's a baby dinosaur. And I think we just have to step back and say, whoa, like we have the fossil of a baby dinosaur. But this thing, luckily, it was recognized by this company, and it was purchased, put in this museum, and then kept safe until really my colleague, who's an expert on dinosaurs, Li Da Xing is his name, until he was working with this museum, he recognized the importance of it. And that's when the proper study started. So about 70 million years ago, an ostrich-like dinosaur was on the verge of hatching, but then never got the chance. And we actually now have a dinosaur embryo. And as I understand it, part of it is that it actually is sort of almost identical to how a baby chicken would look at the same point. Could you kind of walk us through that? It's fascinating. If you just saw a photograph of this and you didn't know it was a fossil and you were just to ask somebody, what do you think this thing is? It looks like an egg and then there's the bones inside and it really does look like a little baby chicken curled up in its egg. And that's because these dinosaurs called oviraptors, they laid eggs and the babies hatched from eggs. And we can now see from this fossil that the little baby dinosaurs actually developed in their eggs very similar to birds, which makes a lot of sense because these dinosaurs are very closely related to birds. They are the ancestors of birds. But what we saw for the first time in this fossil is this posture. This little baby dinosaur is curled up in the egg. Its head is tucked underneath its arm or basically its wing, and its neck is getting into position to break through the egg. 
So it would have been hatching very soon after. It was probably one or two days from hatching at most. And this is exactly what birds do today. When a baby bird's in an egg, it doesn't just haphazardly just like burst out of the egg. But in the few days before it hatches, there's this coordinated dance of movements and it gets itself ready. And it's the same way that a human baby, you know, has a position in the womb. And if that position isn't perfectly right, you could have a breech pregnancy or something like that, which can be very damaging. Birds are similar. They get the embryo into this perfect position. So the neck is aligned with the head and it can then just tap through the egg. So we see that in this dinosaur. That means this dinosaur laid eggs, developed in their eggs, really exactly like birds do today. And for an animal 70 million years old, that is just an astounding thing. And it brings this dinosaur to life. This is a dinosaur baby. And there's just something that's so relatable about that. To give people a sense of this, the dinosaur itself, the baby, measured about 11 inches long, but it was curled up because the egg actually was 6.7 inches long. So it had to be curled in order to fit inside. Do we have any sense, was this a leathery egg in the crocodile and lizard tradition, or do we think it was a hard egg more like chickens and ducks? This one was hard-shelled, and we can see because the egg itself is fossilized around the embryo and it's mineralized, you know, it's made of the same basic type of calcium eggshell that birds have today. But what you bring up is really interesting because animals that lay eggs today, some lay hard-shelled eggs like birds, others like turtles lay soft, leathery eggs. And it used to be thought that all dinosaurs laid the hard-shelled eggs because those are the kinds that are normally preserved as fossils. But there was a really provocative study published just within the last couple of years that has actually found fossil evidence of soft, leathery eggs for dinosaurs. So it seems like some dinosaurs laid eggs that were really soft and pliable and you can stretch them around. Other ones had hard-shelled eggs. And it was the ones that were most closely related to birds, like this new dinosaur, this oviraptor, that had eggs that were most similar to birds. So that had the hard shell with several layers of calcium crystals in it. So I'm curious, this is kind of remarkable. What was there about that particular area that enabled them to preserve an egg with the embryo? I mean, was it an inundation and a flood or what was happening? We don't know for sure because something happened 70 million years ago to bury this egg in some mud. But what we do know is that the egg was very close to hatching. It would have hatched within a few days because it, the position, the head was just getting so close to break through the egg. So it must have been buried in mud right before it would have hatched. And it looks like a lot of the rocks in that area that preserve fossils, they're mud rocks. They're rocks that are made from hardened mud. And a lot of that mud was formed in mudslides. Probably what happened, again, we don't know for sure, but probably there was a mudslide. It swept over this nest. It probably would have been part of a nest of eggs and it covered it, but it wasn't so violent of a flood that it broke the egg. And that's where it comes down to, this is like a one in a billion thing. You get the egg preserved and covered, but it didn't break. And so that's a lot of what paleontology is. It's going out, looking to see what you can find. And every once in a while, you get really lucky and you find this object from prehistory that's millions of years old. And it tells a story of ancient times long past. Did this particular embryo have sort of an egg tooth to break through? That's an excellent question. And it doesn't seem to. So. A lot of birds today, you know, birds don't have teeth like we have teeth. When birds evolved from dinosaurs, they evolved from like velociraptor type dinosaurs that had lots of big, scary, sharp teeth. But then as birds got smaller and they started to fly, they lost those teeth. 
and no birds today have teeth, although they do have the genes that can <laughs> grow teeth if you tweak those genes. But some birds do have something that's called an egg tooth, and it's not a real tooth like our teeth. It's not made of enamel and stuff, but it's a little projection of keratin, the same stuff our fingernail is made from, that grows from the jaw right before it hatches, and it uses that to break through the egg. And we don't see that on this dinosaur. However, that's a really delicate structure, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was there and it just wasn't preserved so easily. But I think one of the next steps is, you know, we'd love to find embryos with that feature. That would be yet another thing of modern birds that these dinosaurs might have had. So now that we have found an actual embryo, is there any possibility of being able to extract DNA parallel the Jurassic Park experience? Sadly, or probably not sadly, really, because I wouldn't want a T-Rex running around. But no, there just isn't. It was a great storyline for Jurassic Park, for the book, for the movie. It's great science fiction. But DNA breaks down really quickly once an animal dies. The oldest DNA that's ever been found is a little over a million years old. It comes from a woolly mammoth, which is remarkable. But these were mammoths that were basically like frozen in the permafrost. And so to get a dinosaur that's like 100 million years old to have any DNA... Believe me, everybody wants to find dinosaur DNA. Whoever finds it, if ever, will become very famous, but nobody has ever found any, and I think it's just not very likely. I always try to remind people that science is constantly evolving. You know, when I was young, dinosaurs were supposed to be cold-blooded like lizards. You may remember the famous thing where the T-Rex would have had a very limited ability to do anything. And then along came the professor at Yale who said, wait a second, and actually took us back to the original mid-1840s interpretation and said, these are birds. They must have been warm-blooded. And all of a sudden, there's this great series of paintings where you see the absolute scientific state-of-the-art of about 1920 by a wonderful painter named Knight in which the T-Rex behaves like a lizard or a crocodile with limited oxygen capabilities. And then suddenly there's this breakthrough. And now you see the T-Rex standing upright and running like crazy. And since then, and I think this is new, but you can correct me, we now think that they were very much like birds in having air sacs all through their body so that they actually had a capacity for oxygen on a scale that no mammal has. Can you explain that? I'm so glad you brought that up. I just have to say, I mean, it's the most amazing thing to talk dinosaurs at this level with like Speaker of the House. I mean, this is incredible. So thanks for the fun conversation. And you're absolutely right about science. We're always learning new things. And that's what makes science science different from other disciplines of human thought. We are always learning. We're always observing. We're always testing. And a lot of what we once thought was true about dinosaurs, we now know that's no longer true. You look at these older books, even books that I read as a kid, the books we had in school in the 80s and the early 90s, you know, a lot of these are very outdated. And we now know that dinosaurs were much more like birds than reptiles. They were not overgrown lizards. They were not dim-witted. They were not cold-blooded. They were not just sitting around, loitering around, waiting to go extinct. You know, that's not what dinosaurs were like. 
They're very bird-like, very intelligent. We can study their brains using CAT scanners. We can study how they grow using forensic tools to study their bone. And you bring up air sacs, and that's one of these things we've learned really over the past few decades. But we can tell that dinosaurs, many of them, had the same lungs that birds have today. And those are very special lungs. They're not the type of lungs we have. You know, we breathe in, we breathe out. You know, our lungs are basically a lot of little bags that inflate and deflate. But a bird lung is more like a series of pipes or a series of straws. And air can only go through it in one direction. It seems like it shouldn't really work, right? Because you have to breathe in and breathe out. But the way that it works in a bird is when a bird breathes in, some of that air with oxygen goes across those straws immediately. But some of that air is shunted off into these little balloons called air sacs. And then those balloons deflate when the bird breathes out and that air goes across the tube. So when birds breathe in and when they breathe out, they both pass air with oxygen across the tubes of their lungs. We can tell dinosaurs had those lungs because those air sacs left their marks on the dinosaur bones. And so birds today can take in a lot more oxygen than mammals can. These dinosaurs, because they had those same peculiar lungs, could have done the same. And Mr. Speaker, let me tell you, and I talk about this in the new mammal book that'll be out this summer, I think that's one of the key reasons that no land mammals have gotten as big as the biggest dinosaurs on land. I mean, whales are huge, of course. They're the biggest things ever as far as animals. They're mammals, but they live in the water. They don't have to deal with gravity in the same way. But an elephant's never gotten as big as like a brontosaurus. And I think it's because the brontosaurus had those special lungs that could take in so much more oxygen. Doesn't that also mean they probably weighed less than they look like? Yes, and that's another great point. A big brontosaurus or one of these huge long-necked dinosaurs, I mean, they were epically, titanically huge. They were really big. I mean, some of these things would have weighed 50 tons or more. Some of them approached or even exceeded a Boeing 737 aircraft in weight. I had the privilege of seeing the Argentosaurus, which was actually in Philadelphia at the time. I mean, and that's incredible, right? You stand by those bones and you're like, how can an animal be this big? They told me... They thought it was like 70 tons. Yeah, it's always a little bit difficult because we're extrapolating from incomplete fossils. If we have the right bones, especially the limb bones, there's pretty accurate ways to predict the weight of an animal just based on the size of its limbs, because the limbs are what hold it up against gravity. And with some of these big dinosaurs, 50, 60 tons, they probably did weigh that much. But you would think, okay, how can an animal weigh that much? Could it even move if it was that big? And yes, it could, because although it was heavy, its skeleton was really light because those air sacs filled a lot of the bones. So they kept these dinosaurs light and limber. They were kind of like skyscrapers that were built from a very lightweight but very strong type of steel, let's say. And so that was another thing that would have allowed them to get so big. Mammals can't do that. We have a bunch of marrow inside of our bones. We don't have air sacs that can make our bones lighter. That would also have meant that something, I mean, like the famous T-Rex, would probably have had an ability to sustain running far longer than a mammal would. I mean, we think of mammals as being able to do it longer than, say, a lizard, but the multiple air sacs and the fact that they could then generate energy out of oxygen would have made them really formidable. Absolutely. And some mammals are very fast. You know, you look at a cheetah chasing a gazelle or something, you know, that is a very fast animal. But dinosaurs were capable of, I think, even greater feats of strength and endurance. And I think we should think about birds in this way. I mean, some birds fly at the very top of the Himalayas. 
you know, that's basically the altitude of what we're at when we're in an aircraft. But, you know, we can't breathe. <laughs> the aircraft has to be pressurized for us. You know, we can't get enough oxygen. But these birds can fly at that altitude. That's incredible. And a lot of dinosaurs probably could, you know, behave in those kind of ways, too. And, and that just circles back to what you said a few minutes ago about how our ideas have changed so much and that we now really do think dinosaurs were not only much more bird-like, but just in general, they were much more exciting, amazing animals. You know, these were not dead ends of some primeval, prehistoric, you know, archaic world. These were animals that dominated the earth for 150 million years. You know, they were the ones that were on top before us. And I think we need to see them more in that light rather than all these, you know, old primeval things that went extinct. I was very fortunate one year I was out with Jack Horner at the Museum of the Rockies, and he was showing me the cross-section of a series of T-Rex bones over time from very young to mature and how their bone was growing. And then he brought out an ostrich and did the same. And you really can't tell the difference. I mean, the parallels between the two which meant that things like T-Rex actually grew very fast. It's one of these stunning factoids that emerged recently. And Jack Horner, who's a legend in our field, who's you know just recently retired, and I've actually taken Jack's place as the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World consultant now. So I'm following in Jack's footsteps, but he's a legend. And it was Jack's books, by the way, that I read when I was a teenager that inspired me. Jack's done many things. He discovered the first dinosaur nesting grounds in Montana, and he, of course, has done so much to bring dinosaurs to the public through Jurassic World and through his, Jurassic Park and through his books. But one of you know my favorite studies of Jack's is when he has studied the growth of T-Rex. And Jack and his colleagues, as well as another team that was led by one of Jack's former students, they all came to this conclusion that you know T-Rex grew remarkably fast. T-Rex was the size of a bus. It weighed seven or eight tons. It had a head the size of a bathtub. You know, I could fit inside its jaws. And, you know, how do you get an animal that big? And people used to think, well, it lived for hundreds of years and it grew a little bit each year, just like an iguana or something. But no, we can cut open bones. We can count the growth rings inside the bones. So bones have rings in them, just like tree trunks, one ring laid down a year. And nobody has ever found a T-Rex with more than 30 growth rings. So T-Rex, they were dead by the time they were 30. They grew from a little hatchling that would have been in an egg about the size of like a coffee cup or something. That's what T-Rex hatched from. And it grew into something the size of a bus in less than 30 years. And that means that during its teenage years, it went through a growth spurt where it put on about five pounds of weight every single day on average. That's astounding. Just think about how much it would have had to eat. You know. So it's constantly hunting because it's much like a teenager. It's hungry all the time. Exactly. And, you know, that's not a lizard. That's not a crocodile. That is an active, energetic, dynamic, fast-growing animal, probably a warm-blooded animal. That is the new image of dinosaur. But it really raises an interesting question because you have, up until sort of two-thirds of the way through the Triassic, you don't see dinosaurs as dominant figures. And then suddenly something happens, and boom! they become the dominant figure. And then that lasts through the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. What do you think happened in that couple of, probably a couple of million years? It wasn't overnight. But what do you think suddenly differentiated them or allowed them to suddenly fill the space? 
You're absolutely right about it. It's an incredible story. Dinosaurs started small. They started humble. And it took them a long time to become big and to become dominant and to go to the top of the food chain. You know, we think of T-Rex, we think of Brontosaurus, we think of these enormous majestic animals. But for the first at least 30 million years of their history, dinosaurs were not like that. Most dinosaurs were the size of humans, maybe the size of horses, and the biggest ones of all were maybe the size of a giraffe. And then, as you say, something changed. And those first dinosaurs that lived in the Triassic period, they then changed into these Jurassic dinosaurs that were much bigger. And there's some things that we do know and there's some things that we don't know. What we do know is that during the Triassic period, when these first humble, small dinosaurs were living, this was the time of the supercontinent, Pangaea. All the land was gathered as one, and it was this desert continent, very difficult, challenging place. And it was actually a lot of crocodiles and their early relatives that ruled that world. So they were at the top of the food chain. They were more diverse than dinosaurs. They were kind of keeping dinosaurs in their place. You know, the dinosaurs were like the B-list characters, and these crocs were the star actors. And then we know that changed, and we know that changed after there was an extinction, because about 200 million years ago, the Triassic period ends, the Jurassic period begins, and that changeover in geological time is marked by the breakup of the supercontinent. Pangaea split apart, and so North America split from Europe, South America split from Africa. That's where the Atlantic Ocean is today, but before the water came in and filled that gap, Before then, the Earth just bled lava. It was an era, 600,000 years of these mega volcanic eruptions. And that led to a huge warming spike, big global warming, big climate change. It led to an extinction. That killed a lot of the crocs. It killed a lot of the other things. But the dinosaurs survived. They were the winners of that extinction. We know that, but we don't know why the dinosaurs survived. And to me, that's the biggest mystery of dinosaurs. And I wish I could tell you it would make the story so much better, but I don't know the answer. And I think this is something that somebody in the next generation of paleontologists is going to have to figure out. I mean, were the dinosaurs smarter? Did they grow faster? Were they warm-blooded? Did they have feathers? Were they just lucky that their croc competitors died? I don't know. But it's big mysteries like this that make paleontology exciting, and it means there's still so many mysteries that we have to solve. The science is nowhere near finished here. It seems to me that once they've established dominance, sometime early in the Jurassic, you begin to get the gradual splitting away of birds. And the birds begin to flourish and develop on their own, right there with the dinosaurs. And both of them are out there hunting mammals. And mammals are actually shockingly small. They were. You're right. The first mammals were small. Our oldest ancestors go back to the same time of the first dinosaurs in the Triassic period on Pangaea, The dinosaurs, of course, their destiny, they took over the world, they grew to huge sizes, but mammals stayed in the shadows. And during the entire 150 million years or so that the mammals lived with dinosaurs, no mammal was ever bigger than like a raccoon. And so that's incredible. Then the dinosaurs died with the asteroid, you know, except for birds. And within a few hundred thousand years, you have mammals that are starting to approach, you know, the size of small cattle and stuff. And then mammals just take off. And just to circle back, you're right about birds too. You know, birds evolved from other dinosaurs in the Jurassic and birds were part of that 
diversification of dinosaurs after that extinction where all those crocodiles died. Birds go all the way back in time to that. And so it's an incredible story to think about this world. It strikes me that it's more accurate to think of the birds as one of a series of branches of dinosaurs rather than as a sudden dramatic branching away. So in a very real sense, if you had a larger picture of dinosaurs, you'd actually have birds within that larger picture next to three or four other types that had also branched off. You know what, Mr. Speaker, you're going to have to explain this to my students because it's a hard concept, right? You know, we say birds are dinosaurs, and I think you nailed the way to think about it. You know, birds are just another branch on the family tree of dinosaurs. And sitting next to them on the family tree are things like velociraptors and things like this oviraptor whose egg we, you know, just described. And really, the best way, I think, to think about birds is that they are a type of dinosaur. They are a type of dinosaur that got small, that evolved wings, that developed the ability to fly in the same way that a bat is a type of mammal that got small, evolved wings, developed the ability to fly. That's what we're talking about here. Birds as part of the dinosaur family tree, part of the dinosaur family album. They are as much a dinosaur as a brontosaurus, as a T-Rex, as a triceratops, but they happen to be the only dinosaurs that survived that great extinction when the asteroid hit and the only dinosaurs to live on. And maybe you could imagine a weird parallel world where all mammals died except for bats. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. The other thing I have to ask you for a second is, because again, it's one of those things that just fascinates me. I think it's in the late Permian and the early Triassic. You have the mammal-like reptiles, which actually aren't mammal-like. They're not the forerunner of mammals. If we rewind, you know, the tape of life here, and we're talking about dinosaurs, and the first dinosaur is about 230 million years old. The immediate ancestors of dinosaurs are about 250 million years old. If we go even farther back, like 300 million years old, you have this time period called the Permian. This is when the supercontinent of Pangaea came together. And this is when you had all kinds of archaic reptiles and early mammal relatives that were living on that supercontinent. And it was some of these mammal-like reptiles. They were not actually reptiles. They were the forerunners of mammals, but very distant, like cousins of mammals. But they ruled that world. And you had ones with saber teeth. You had ones with big domes on their heads. They would headbutt each other. You had enormous ones with pot bellies that ate plants. They ruled that world. And then there was an extinction that wiped them out. And it was that extinction that almost killed the mammal line. It almost snipped the mammal line long before mammals even had a chance. And it was that extinction that elevated the dinosaurs, gave them their chance. I'm fascinated because I didn't realize this, but you were the resident paleontologist for the BBC series on Walking with Dinosaurs and a consultant on the movie Walking with Dinosaurs 3D. I mean, how did it feel being a consultant on those kinds of productions? I've been really lucky to do a lot of fun things in this job as a paleontologist. I mean, first of all, I get to dig up dinosaurs for a living is what every kid wants to do. But not only do I get to do that, I get to do things like write these books and you know, give lectures and travel around and work with interesting people. And one of the things that I love most is consulting on television and on films. And so I consulted on the Walking with Dinosaurs film that came out in 2013. This was a big blockbuster film with these very realistic CGI dinosaurs living in Alaska during the late Cretaceous. And that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot doing it. I, you know, learned a bit about the filmmaking process. And then now I, you know, work with the Jurassic World series. So I'm the paleontology consultant for the film. And there'll be another one, you know, as, as 
some of you may have seen. The trailer recently came out, so the, the next Jurassic World will be out this June. There's going to be a lot of new dinosaurs. We are finally going to see feathered dinosaurs in this installment. This is something the director, Colin Trevorrow, he promised me the first time. He asked me if I wanted to consult with them, and I said, yeah, I'd love to. What do you think about feathers? He said, we're going to put feathers on some of those dinosaurs, and I said, I'm on board. So that was really fun and kind of surreal, just working with some pretty well-known Hollywood people and just answering their questions, telling them about dinosaurs, helping them get their facts straight for when they're designing these movie characters. So, you know, these guys, they're up on their dinosaurs. They know these dinosaurs. They want to know about these dinosaurs. They want all the information so they can build the best movie monsters, really. And it was also surreal to get to visit the set, you know, to have not long, but, you know, a little meeting with Chris Pratt. That was fun. And <laughs> Bryce Dallas Howard, Omar, see some of the actors. You know, that's just crazy when you're a scientist who's mostly in the lab and mostly digging up bones to meet these kind of actors and just make that connection. So I'll always cherish that. You mentioned the point about there'll be some new dinosaurs. I was really surprised that we've been averaging since 2003, 45 new species a year. I mean, that is an astonishing productivity. It is. For two decades now, there have been roughly, you know, 50-ish dinosaurs a year, roughly a new dinosaur each week. And that's a totally new dinosaur. That's like not a new bone or a new skeleton. That's a new species, a new type of dinosaur we never knew existed. And it's stunning. And that means that, you know, within the last two decades, and really this is the time I've studied dinosaurs. I just started my undergraduate, you know, in 2002, 2003. So just during the time I've been in the field, you know, this is something like 900 to 1,000 new dinosaur species that have been found. And it's continuing. This pace continues. And it really is that the science of paleontology has become global. It used to be a science that was a pretty narrow discipline. And, you know, it was mostly people in, you know, the posture universities, let's face it, in the U.S., Canada, Great Britain, parts of Europe, you know, who were the paleontologists? There were a few paleontologists studying dinosaurs in different countries around the world. But over the last two decades, the number of young people going into the field has just skyrocketed. It's not just the little boys anymore. You know, the vast majority of my students are young women. And it's not just people like me growing up in America, you know, or my students here now in Britain, but it's people in China, Argentina, Brazil, Mongolia, South Africa, people all around the world. And a lot of them watched Jurassic Park and were inspired by that film series. So we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Jurassic Park. So you're now working on the rise and reign of the mammals, which will be out in June. So our listeners have a chance now to go and get the rise and fall of the dinosaurs, a new history of a lost world, which they should read first to set the stage for then buying in June the rise and reign of the mammals, which I'm looking forward to. And again, thank you. You know, you've been not only a fan of dinosaurs, but you've been a great friend of paleontologists and paleontology and museums for many years. And, you know, we do appreciate it. We know what you've done to help us. Steve, thank you. I look forward to having you back. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Steve Brusat. You can read more about the discovery of baby Yingliang on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast, 
and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.